when people in the trenches see people like me coming in, their first reaction is to recoil, right? In fear of the of Voldemort coming through the front door. My whole take on this really is I'm coming in here to help you be a rock star. So how do we partner and work together, make project plans, get this thing moving forward together? So we're improving revenue. We're making you look good. We're leaving you with a portfolio of, of kind of guiding principles and framework so that you can do this and scale it moving forward. So it's really a little bit of a delicate balance. Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to episode 123 of Anesthesia and Pain Management Success. I'm very pleased to be joined today by our special guest, Jeff Gorky. Jeff is an experienced healthcare executive, consultant, and leader with decades of experience spanning all healthcare sites of service. He's an immense wealth of knowledge from whom I've already learned <laughs> a lot of things in just a couple of conversations that we've had, and I'm excited to talk to him today. He's written a book, he's published on Forbes, he brings so much valuable intellectual capital to the table. Jeff, welcome. Justin, thanks for having me. Delighted to be on board today. So as I was preparing for this interview, I was perusing your your CV and one of the specialties that you had communicated there, and one of the things we're gonna talk about today is the, the art of the organizational turnaround. And I've gotta say, as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about that show, Bar Rescue? I don't know if you've ever seen it, but yeah, this yeah, guy like- no, Yeah, 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 I know of it. Yeah. And I think this is analogous, but with a clinical twist to it. So. Yeah, so a guy, for anyone who's not familiar, uh, there's this guy who's a health or a, um, a food connoisseur, you know, restaurateur and bar owner. And he like kicks down the front door of this place and is like, he basically evaluates the, all the shortcomings of a given restaurant or bar and rips it all apart and puts it back together so that it's, it's running more profitably and so that they actually serve good food and drinks. And I will tell you this, uh, I, I'm a little more subtle in my delivery when dealing with physicians, just so yeah. you know. Good, so good. It's not hyper-aggressive. Yeah. But I, uh, as I was thinking about this, I pictured kind of the, the surgery center equivalent of, of that <laughs> circumstance. Yeah, yeah. Again, with a little more delicate delivery, but yeah, I think that's fair, actually. So tell me a little bit about, you know, that's a very, co- an organization is a complex organism. There's obviously the financials, but there's also cultural and HR and all these other dynamics. So talk a little bit about some of the things that you've seen. Yeah. So it's interesting you say that. And I think it's dead on. One of my physician friends has said to me before, you know, in these deals, a lot of times culture is what gets left on the cutting room floor. People get all wrapped around the axle about EBITDA and profitability and what that's going to do to X, Y, and Z. And then if you follow through on some of those deals where you haven't done a cultural kind of, if you're not introspective about who your potential partner is going to be, that portends really bad things down the road. And then to your point, there are all of these other, I'd say little microcosms within the care delivery ecosystem. And for me, when I say care delivery ecosystem, because I may use it more than once today, but for me, that's basically the whole clinical flow within whether it's a surgery center or a physician's medical practice, right? So it's all of the front end stuff, the staffing related stuff, the whole visit, the coding, then the rev cycle piece and, and closing up that loop, if you will. And so on that loop, there's any number of different things like HR, like coding and compliance and HIPAA and IT and all those different things. So lots of moving parts. What has surprised you most in getting involved with some of these turnarounds? Are we talking on the surgery center side of things or generally? Yeah. Okay. So, well, and I can actually say this generally, you know, right. So I've been in the business 32 years, right. When you think you've seen it all, something new and interesting pops up and that's what makes this just a fun business. There's always a different dynamic you hadn't contemplated or another landmine that maybe you hadn't seen before. Pretty fascinating in that regard. Always changing. Can you tell us about one of the landmines? Oh, boy. Um, Let's see. How could I do this? And you can feel free to anonymize however (laughs) necessary. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll give you one instance where, and this one's not that much of an anomaly necessarily, but it's a physician who basically owned... 90-ish percent of this entity 
and ran it, had some kind of partners, minor owners, or folks who wanted to buy in and get equity, right? A lot of times you have a, a medical practice where you've got some shareholders and they'll sell off a piece to docs who have been employed for X amount of time, whatever. Um, so anyway, 90% owner in the, uh, in the clinic. The first word that pops in mind, which may be not fair, but sort of tyrannical and <laughs> counsel was a family member who he could kind of put on the payroll, which isn't always the best way. And then the administrative piece was a spouse. So those are always kind of prickly. I think that's good. But that one's not even the most fatal. I, I just can't even think of one that I saw recently that just set me back. But that's, you know, that's one of those. And you do see that one uh, just depends on the, the structure and the ownership model and things like that. I'm excited to dive into a surgery center case study for some of the work that you've done. And before we kind of get into the detail there, I'm curious, I have something that I've been, I, I recently had a conversation at a, actually a conference with a physician who was sharing some perspective about surgery centers and surgery center ownership. And specifically for pain management, this is an area of keen interest for many doctors. And can you share your thoughts on the, the amount of volume and the amount of revenue that you bring to a surgery center and how that relates to the partnership share that you buy. Because I frequently see this where physicians are strong producers at a surgery center and they're not partners, they're associates at this point. They're interested in buying in. And then there's this question about, you know, if I'm, if I'm pushing 10 or 15 or 20% of the revenue here, should I be entitled to buy in something akin to that? Yeah. Uh, to have an uh, equitable arrangement or? Yeah, so so let's level set our the remainder of our discussion and so everyone understands I am not an attorney. I know enough about fair market value and commercial, commercial reasonableness and all of those pieces to be dangerous. I punt many of those things to people who are qualified counselors. So, okay, so unpack this a little bit. The ownership piece generally should be driven off a of fair market value assessment of what the thing is. You can't sell pieces based on volume because then it's an inducement to refer to the center and there's all sorts of other legal stuff that goes with that. So it's got to be an assessment of what the thing looks like right this minute and what a reasonable buyer would pay in this given market for a share or shares of, of the um, surgery center. In terms of dollar value, our volumes, you know, a lot of that is driven off of the operational functionality of the center. One that you and I had chatted about a little bit, uh, they had some block time issues. So it was kind of hit or miss. They had some external docs who didn't perform surgeries there who were gonna and all this. Other. So that really, that oper operational functionality or lack thereof really drives the revenue. And when you, when you optimize flow and the clinical piece of it. And it's purely from the, from the um, clinical side of things. It's the block time, it's the anesthesia or whatever the case may be relative to those procedures. You know, are you lining up total knees versus injections or things of that nature? So it's really predicated, the, the revenue generation is predicated on case volume, case mix and payers. I think that probably catches most of that piece. Cool. So let's zoom in. And tell us, you know, that we had a conversation prior to this call about a specific case that you had seen. And I want to basically have you tell this story and give listeners a sense for when a, a consultant comes in and is trying to optimize, you know, clinically, and ultimately that flows down to the financial and the value of the equity stake that a physician owns. What types of things are you looking at? And just go ahead and tell the story. Yeah. So we had done a fair market value assessment of a surgery center that was privately held, multi-specialty, but not like crazy numbers of different specialties. So they did some pain. They did some ortho. They were exploring the prospect of some outpatient cardiology procedures. So privately held, the fair market value assessment provided to them uh, understanding of the per share value of the entity. And it was pretty good, relatively speaking. There was still room to grow and, and to maximize the EBITDA and the revenue to the owners. And so 
Fast forward nine months after that initial FMV and, you know, cause those have a shelf life, right? And, and after nine months, a lot can happen. And so the original FMV became stale. And so we performed another FMV on, on the entity and it had dropped in that nine months, maybe 12 months, it had dropped about 90% in value. So you're talking about, I think, low six-figure initial value, I think, or high five per share to somewhere into four figures. I met with the lead physician who, these things are always fascinating because the sometimes there's a disconnect between shareholders or partners or owners. You know, they have their perception and perception is is everyone's reality, um, but that's not always the reality. Um, boots on the ground, kind of in the weeds. Here's what's actually going on. So we sat down. He wanted some assistance with regard to the operations. So went on site and did really a couple days a month of on site work to help streamline the surgery center. And so, you know, the, the, there's it's sort of a two-pronged but coordinated approach. The clinical piece, right? The functionality of the care delivery, which is, you know, again, blocking uh, uh, proper block times, proper patient flow, triple HC, uh, triple AHC uh, accreditation. It's the nursing and clinical staff, how you utilize them. It's all the supplies and storage and and um, managing your your inventory with regard to meds, et cetera. And then there's the operational piece, which is the revenue cycle type stuff, basic building management, um, working on HVAC, you know, all of those pieces that help to really support and stand up the clinical side of things. So I went in there and I am not a clinician, but I do work with an RN MBA who's done turnaround work with me on other surgery centers in the past. And so Got in there and did a fairly detailed line-by-line P&L review of where the money was going. And at the time we got in there with this reduced, you know, kind of updated FMV per share price of being really not good, basically barely covering the overhead nut on a monthly basis at this point. And so got in there and just looked at all the expenses. The key expenses, of course, uh, are going to be the real estate and, and the staffing costs and things of that nature. Interestingly enough, went in and found out there were some contracts that were a little hyperinflated. And so we negotiated those down. We looked at staffing, made some changes in the clinic leadership. Um, and, and I will take a little, little bit of a tangent here to let you know that my approach to this, right, can be when, when, when people like me who go into medical practices or health systems and do turnaround work, it's a little bit of a third rail proposition because we need to go in and partner with our clients. When people in the trenches see people like me coming in, their first reaction is to recoil, right? In fear of the of Voldemort coming through the front door. My whole take on this really is I'm coming in here to help you be a rock star. So how do we partner and work together, make project plans, get this thing moving forward together? So we're improving revenue we're making you look good. We're leaving you with a portfolio of, of kind of guiding principles and framework so that you can do this and scale it moving forward. So it's really a little bit of a delicate balance. Can I ask a couple, can I ask a couple quick questions just to kind of clarify things? So obviously there was this financial uh, things got really bad really fast. And the owners perceived that was was this a physician-owned surgery center? It is, yeah. Okay, so what, that was was that the catalytic event where they had you perform this analysis and they saw that they had a ninety percent drop off in the value of their shares and they said, Jeff, we need you to come in and just we probably don't even know what's going on, perhaps, but we need you to just tell us. Was that kind of what the conversation started like? Yeah. So the the invitation was post new FMV, right? So when they found out the value was way low, they had wanted to sell some more shares, obviously the owner didn't want to sell it, you know, five figure or four figures, whatever the case, he wanted to sell it, you know, six high fives, whatever per share. The majority shareholder ran, made most of the decisions kind of sort of in a vacuum. He had some minority shareholders that together, the three of them were about 80% owners. And then you had these 
fractional owners who were maybe a point, point and a half per. And what happened is they started to get angry because they had no say in what was going on in the organization. And sometimes we're deaf or blind to the things that are occurring. And so they just really started to winnow back on their case quantities. And that was part of the problem. You know, the ship was leaking and it was, hey, come in and help us out. So again, for me as a non-clinician, knowing enough to be dangerous on the clinical side, I so on the on the business side, it's here's where our overhead is. How do we deal with this and manage this? Revenue cycle was a huge problem. No follow-up, couldn't find the contracts, didn't know the allowables. We had outs at the time there was an outsourced rev cycle company. They were not hyper aggressive in collecting. They had an arrangement that basically, and I've seen this before, it, it happens. And, and I think folks really need to be cognizant of this as a potential landmine in these, in these outsourced arrangements. They had a net revenue arrangement, right? So if I bill $100, well, let's say my billing and my collected is the same dollar value. So I bill and collect $100. That's easy money for them. They get five points on that 100, right? If I bill and the claim gets denied and then it goes out in ages, well, it's not so sexy to work on an aging claim, right? It might cost them two bucks to get those five points. It might cost them 25 bucks to chase that claim around, right? So there's a little less of, I don't want to say disincentive, but there's more work and more cost. So those, those percent on collections are low hanging fruit to the RevCycle folks. Can you give a sense for when you when you crack the book on the arse, on the revenue cycle conversation and you sit down and it's like, all right, guys, we're at the revenue cycle line on the agenda and you start to process some of those key ratios, some of those things that you're looking at. Can you maybe just point out one or two of those and like what's a healthy number and what's the bad number that you saw and how you wanted to try to improve that? Yeah. So in terms of the numbers, they're aging, right? The aging is broken down kind of historically in the healthcare space in buckets. And they had a, so what you start to do is you look at the, the starting point on that is the buckets. So it's, there's several different things. I'm getting lost in the weeds of the numbers, but you, you look at the aggregate of what the buckets look like, right? And then it's how much is in which bucket. So it's zero to 30, 31 to 60, 61 to 90. But the further you get out, statistically speaking, the less likely you are to collect. You also have some aging issues and whatever else on, on those. And then it's what are we? What is our net collection rate of this money? Net collections should be ninety-five to one hundred percent of what your allowable is, right? So if the contract says we're going to pay a hundred bucks for X, you should collect ninety-five to one hundred bucks for that service. The gross collection rate really depends. That's indicative of several different markers within the rev cycle. Some of those could indicate your charges are way too high or way too low or whatever the case may be. But the buckets will really tell you how aggressively the stuff has been worked or what's going on with it. Likewise, and we could get into a whole different conversation about this. If you go out and see an accounts receivable, we call it days in AR, how long the agent is. And if you go out and see that and it's too good, I start to ask questions then too, right? Because then it becomes a discussion of, your number's good, 30 days to get these turned around and get paid. That's awesome. But is it because we get a payment reimbursement from Blue Cross Blue Shield or whoever, whatever commercial payer, Suzy Q just takes what we got paid, attributes to the account, writes the rest off. That will artificially make your days in AR look really, really good. So when it's, when it's really bad, I want to look at it. When it's really good, I want to look at it too, because there are ways to massage those numbers into really good numbers that really have no value. Right. Meaning they, they paid something that wasn't what the contract showed. And they sent, they sent you $5 for the $100 claim. And, you, and you Susie doesn't okay. know the fee schedule. She doesn't know the allowables. Either she's too lazy, respectfully, maybe that's the case, or they're not, they're not loaded into the practice management system. So she gets this EOB and the insurance company says, yeah, this is what's your, what you're owed. And you just, you just attribute it to the account, to the appropriate account, and then you write the rest off. So there are little games that can be played. There's another one which has to do with closing out accounts where, you know, there are open, open charges in the physician's book. Um, and people, I have seen instances where people don't age those until they get charged. Well, let's say you did a procedure on January 1 and you didn't close it off and sign the notes and submit it till March 31st. Are you going to tell me 
that that's not aging for those three months. That's the logic we're talking about here. I would suggest to you that as soon as you're done with that procedure, that that claim it, that claim is there and it's aging. Date of service, again, I have seen this, where it creates this sort of anomaly of where you can kind of cook the books on the AR numbers, if that makes sense. The bottom line here is you're looking at the revenue cycle conversation. You see a lot of problems. You probably see some a lot of old receivables. You see we're taking too long to collect. Perhaps we're even taking too long to bill. And, you know, this item that you mentioned about the billing from when the notes are closed rather than when the service is rendered. So as you're sort of seeing all those things and how are you processing and prioritizing and identifying action items from this? Yeah, the, the, one of the things there is to then peel back the onion a little bit on and let me and let me step back a little bit, too. So I don't mean I mean, physicians closing their charges and getting them submitted. Once you open that claim up and you you finish it. The question then is, did you charge it out? Did you submit it, right? Did you code it out and submit it, whatever the case may be, as opposed to just doing the procedure? Obviously, that's not when, but it's kind of a date of service driven math model, if you will. So just to clarify that, what you do is look for the low hanging fruit. You start to peel back the onion on collections, what we're doing in the collection space, what what we're doing on the front end. Are we doing eligibility checks and then collecting appropriate copays, deductibles, any outstanding balances? If this is a patient who comes in, you know, once every two months or something uh, akin to that, it's also looking at denials and things of that nature, right? If we're getting denied for, golly, I forget what this one code was, but there was a, a load of these denials that weren't getting addressed. Same code, we'll call it CPT one two three four five or something. And so said to the to the staff there, why has this not been chased around? You're getting all these. And why is the RevCycle outsource group not even bothered to look at these analytics? So then it's going back and addressing those, finding out if there were legit denials. If so, what do we do moving forward? If not, let's appeal those with whatever physician notes are necessary to appeal them. And then so it's 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 the quick wins, reducing what you can, getting you know more cash infusion. And then where necessary, restructuring what that rev cycle piece looks like. And in this case, at least when I was there, we did not decide to bring the rev cycle piece in-house. We just decided to go a little harder on the outsource folks and make them do things candidly that are kind of de facto, you know, it's it's rev cycle 101 they should have been doing. So we just sort of held their feet to the fire. In this case, the administrator in the location. So here's another sidebar to this discussion had, let's just say, competing interest in the surgery center. I had farmed out part of the IT piece to her brother's corporation, didn't show the managing partner the entire agreement, basically page one and page sign here. So the managing partner didn't know he was getting into this agreement with her brother, which may or may not have been the right choice. You know, it's one of these situations where managing partner trusted the administrator a little too much. Um, And candidly, they should have that level of trust. People shouldn't be underhanded like that. But in any event, she was not necessarily paying attention to some of these things as well. Now, that can come from a lack of insight and knowledge. I would suggest in this case, part of this was she was overwhelmed also running a clinic on the side. and, And it's just one of these things that got lost in the shuffle. Got it. So aside from the revenue cycle, talk about some of the other areas of the practice. Obviously, there's like clinical, there's HR operations. Talk about some of those other areas and the things that you found. Yeah. So so I'll start in the clinic because I would like to get to the clinical a little bit as much as I can speak about it. But the the surgery center, the the managing partner, the senior managing partner with the bulk of the equity had a spouse who was a PhD who had no, I think was a non-medical clinician, more of a, well, so had a PhD background, let's say that. And so there was this just assumption that she would know how to help run the surgery center just because by virtue of the fact that she had a PhD. And while I appreciate, you know, the, higher ed and all that good stuff. There is a lot of, there are a lot of moving parts in a clinic or in a surgery center. And 
just based on the fact you have a PhD or an MD or an MBA for that matter, does that not necessarily mean you should be the one making these decisions? And there's also the piece of it being the majority shareholder's spouse, which creates, it can create tension with the other partners, especially those, those um, owners who had, you know, one or two or three points, but, but it looks like the managing partner sort of looking out for number one a little bit. That also, from a cultural perspective, can lead staff to be gun shy because this person is the spouse of the majority owner. And, you know, is she looking over my shoulder? Is she critiquing me fairly or not fairly? And then the approach to cost containment was not necessarily looking at some of the things I would have looked at. And that's not to say I'm the expert, but I think I know what I'm doing. But instead it was, hey, we're going to get rid of the coffee pots in the office because we don't want to spend the money on coffee. That, you know, for me, that's the thing you do spend money on because you want your people happy. You want to bring them lunch once in a while. You know what I mean? So it's understanding where you're going to make those hard spend decisions. And coffee pots is not one of those. Well, I was just going to say, so it's that um, HR management was not what I would call hyper sophisticated. So, and, and that's, you know, a place that opens you up for a variety of landmines that can happen. There's a lot of litigation born out of poor HR policy and management and all that good stuff. So, you know, there was that stuff to start to get teeth into, get some process and procedure wrapped around. Again, understanding our biggest contracts and why we're doing what we're doing. I will tell you that IT piece, we put to bed pretty quickly and got out of the contract for a variety of reasons. It was fairly able to do that. We looked at some other buys that didn't make sense and cut back on those. And within six months on the, on the, on the spend side, they were on to get an ROI of, I think it was about 12 or 14 to one. So, but that's just on the spend side and that's static. And so then the question becomes, you know, let's say you do no procedures in the surgery center, then you have no ROI at all because, you know, you're upside down, whatever. So the predicate there is now on the clinical side, what do we do to keep this thing moving forward, to generate cases, to expand the breadth of what we can do on the outpatient side within reason? And, and, and again, not a clinician, but we did work, um, RNs worked to get them ready for triple AHC, which had not been attended to. And we did a crash course on getting them certified and got that taken care of. It was a lot of stuff dealing with the HVAC. It was an older building, you know, going through the rooms, looking at how the physical plant looked. Part of that too is perception. It's how is it perceived from a clinic, from a patient's eyes when they go in, are they going to see this place where, yeah, I want you to cut my knee open and go in and, and replace it, that kind of thing. We did a lot of work on the inventory of the meds and we did a lot of work again on the block time and trying to structure that to optimize patient flow and schedule. There were some PRN clinicians. So we had to balance that sort of just-in-time clinical aspect to it. We had a lead RN who left the uh, surgery center. So we had to elevate a qualified candidate. We could have gone external, but, you know, this guy was here. He was good. He was dedicated, you know, and he had aptitude. So we counseled and worked with him, partnered with him to grow him in the space. So took care of those aspects on the clinical side of things. Let me ask a couple of questions on the things you just shared. So when you came in, you're looking at the, you know, the overhead, the expenses, just sort of at a, as a big, as a whole, can you give a sense for ratios or percentages or in terms of like how much of your revenue should you spend to keep the lights on in a surgery center that's of the profile that you were looking at? Like how bad was it compared to where it should have been? That's a great question. Let me noodle that a little as I tell you this. I had a conversation with an associate um, in the Midwest yesterday, and we were talking about running clinics and what the overhead should look like. When I grew up running private practices, if you were running a 40% overhead, and by that definitionally, I'm talking about 40% to run the place. So that's staffing, that's employed physicians, PAs, NPs, it's all the staff, it's all the med mal, it's the leasing and all that. And then 
under or below the line, as I put it, is the shareholder piece, right? Because they theoretically get paid last and what's left over. Back in the day, 40% overhead, 50% overhead was good. So you're basically, you're bringing in $100 cash money versus accrual. So $100 in the door, $50 going out to this, the expenses, and then another 50 gets parsed out to the shareholders. That's a pretty good day. I'd say clinics nowadays are in the 55 to 65 range. And so the overhead piece, what we discussed yesterday kind of academically was, or theoretically was, what are you comfortable with, right? If I would make an argument that, and I have written on this before, that if you've got high overhead, but you're generating an extra $10 million a year that can drop to the bottom line to shareholders, okay. And I would make the argument that if you went from 50 to 80% overhead, but that generated a, a 12 to one return, maybe that makes sense in the organization. In terms of of the overhead ratio for a surgery center, I think it's sort of predicated on, on that logic a little bit. It's also predicated on the size, where they are, what they're doing. You know, when you get into healthcare is local. When you get into the supply demand of, of doing procedures in on maybe tribal lands in New Mexico or, you know, nowhere, Arizona, where you're the only surgery center, maybe it costs more to deliver there. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe you have enough qualified staff because that's the only place to work and you can reduce the cost of delivery of care there. So I might punt a little bit on that in terms of like a definitive answer. I think it really is predicated on what you're comfortable with, right? These guys in the instant case, certainly were not comfortable with a 90% overhead or 95%. And, you know, you can look at the, at the P&L, the dollars coming in, dollars going out. Some months they were at 105% overhead. So that becomes a balancing act. I know that doesn't answer your question particularly, but I think some of those things are cogent to the discussion of overhead. Can you talk about AAA HC and what that is and why it's relevant for a surgery center? Yeah, so accredit, uh, Medicare accreditation so that you can see patients and bill and collect. And these guys waited till the 11th hour to get this done. And we, and again, not a clinician, so I don't have all the ins and outs of what goes into that, but we were firefighting to get that done and get it done timely requires, you know, some on-site time and some examination of the physical plans. But basically without that, you're not billing Medicare for patients. So depending on your demographics, maybe not as much of an issue, carries a lot of, of street cred relative to billing for procedures. And then talk about optimizing block time and how that interacts with staffing and some of the some of the things you had to work through there. Yeah. So so they were in this surgery center, I think four lanes, four surgery suites. And it was kind of catch as catch can when we got there. And again, not a clinician. So I can't speak sort of acutely or, or with a finer point on what those blocks should look like necessarily. But it, but let's say we had a pain guy who would come in maybe two days or three days a week, let's say two days a week. And I think what happened is it, it was, in this case, a convenience item for the pain physician who was, I want to say he, he was a 13% shareholder. So minority, but still one of the bigger shareholders. But he would come in, he'd schedule some cases for a Monday and then schedule some for a Thursday. Well, if you're doing a PRN staffing model, which can work, it's hard to manage if it would be easier to say to him, hey, can we not push these cases unless there's an extenuating circumstance? Can we not push them to Monday and get you to stack these up based on whatever your needs are on that Monday versus Monday? Right. So then we open up case uh, or excuse me, we open up surgery space time for Thursday for other types of cases. And this guy was a shareholder, so he was amenable to that. But there was an instance where we wanted to get to Fridays because we had patients asking for Fridays, and he was a little more reticent about doing cases on Fridays. So then the question becomes, you know, you make that value argument. Okay, if you're not going to do the cases, you know, we can we can pair back the PRN staff, but we still have staff here who 
or FTEs that need to get paid? Can we do something there? Right. So that's, that's the balance between what I do and what my clinical folks can do. And then the discussion of where do you want to land? This is your place. I have no dog in the fight. I don't get a piece of anything. I'm telling you, here's what you can do to get this thing to be a little more profitable. So that's the nice part about what I do too. I can um, deliver you solutions that make sense. I can obviously, again, not deliver clinic, clinical pieces, but I have people who can, and we can talk through those. And then I defer to your judgment as a physician. And in this case, as a physician owner, what do you want to do? It's up to you. I'm telling you, here's the opportunity cost of what's going on. Let's talk about staffing and leadership, and then we'll kind of get to the conclusion of how you interacted over the implementation of this these observations. Th this is the tough part. I mean, you mentioned like people see me come in and assume I'm the ax man there to, you know, fire the, the fat in the system and make it more lean operationally. And that's obviously, in some cases, that's probably what happens. And in others, it's probably unfounded. But talk about how you processed the staffing and leadership questions in this circumstance. I usually go in with the predicate of what I had said earlier, which is I'm here to help you. And I don't overly, you know, gloss it and make it fluffy. We're not best buds. I'm, but I am here to work with you to make it better. And, and, the initial stages really are kind of a Q&A. I'll look at the PL, I'll look at data, I'll ask them. It'll be very interactive in terms of my delivery pieces. What do you see? Because a lot of times the administrators or administrative staff see some stuff they don't like. And the interview process for me, in this case, having me come in, it gives them a little bit of, little bit of a blocker, right? Leading the way through the pack kind of thing. But I tell them candidly, I'm here to help you tell me what you see and be honest. I'm not going to rat you out. I'm not, you know, because what I do a lot of times the initial assessment, in this case, there was no assessment. It was the, it was the fair market value thing. And they said, come in and help us. Okay. Boom. But when I'm assessing a practice or a surgery center, it's let's go in and look at the thing from start to finish. And it's me and clinical folks to understand what's going on, what's broken and in that process, we interview folks along the way and we will say, you know, tell us what you feel. It may be wrong, it may be right, but what I've learned over the course of time is there's always a golden strand, right? And people may be pulling at that strand from different angles. So I talk to an owner, he may be, well, no money's coming in. And I talked to Susie Q at the front desk and, you know, we were talking about eligibility. Well, we don't check eligibility, right? So they're getting to that common thread. Rev cycle's broken, yeah, because we're not collecting. And so when I talk to these folks, we interview enough folks where we can get a common theme without pointing at Susie as, as saying, you know, Janie can't do her job, right? What we learn is there's not enough training going on, or they don't have the tools to deliver the work, or there's no measure and metrics. I'm a big dashboard guy. Let's deliver to the shareholders monthly a snapshot of what's going on so they can see and understand and so that process is really the implementation piece is oftentimes informed greatly by that operational review. And when I do the review, there's a lot of data and statistics that go into it to really quantify the broken pieces without getting lost in the weeds of billing this code or that code. It's revenue cycle. You should be here. You're not. How do we get there? And right. And then you dig into that in the um, kind of the post-op dissertation, if you will. So uh, it's a lot of partnering with folks and understanding what they feel is broken. And then I, I kind of go with this adage. If one person tells you there's a dead body in the corner, you know, maybe you can smell it. Maybe you want to go look. If you interview 10 people and 10 people tell you, then there's probably a rotting corpse. You ought to go look at it. Right. And so again, these 10 people are in different areas of the building telling you they smell a dead body, but it all comes back to that dead body in the corner. Maybe a bad aphorism for what I do, but, uh, but it gets you the point of, you know, again, it's, it's the golden strand. People will get to the thing that's broken. And a lot of times they're scared to speak out. So this is really almost cathartic sometimes with them being able to say, you know, I love this place. I love where I work, but I can't say anything because this, that, or the other thing. So. So you put together this, you know, set of this analysis. How long does it take, by the way, to sort of synthesize this, you know, gather all the data and then present these physician partners with something actionable? Yeah, it, it really depends on the size of the engagement. So I'm working on a couple small practices right now, just outpatient clinics. The process, just to give a little latitude and, you know, in case there's bumps along the way with 
aggregation of data, sort of anal, uh, analysis of the data, then some on-site interviews and meetings, and then going off and starting to put those things together. Depending on the size, four to six weeks. If it's enormous, obviously it could be three months. It just really is predicated on how big the thing is. So this, this group, four to six weeks, I just pitched another one um, today that's really going to be a review of some of the stuff they have, then go help them scale their, their operation. Then I've been engaged with a client. The assessment took 350 docs in this market, and it took about two months from start to finish. And, and, and candidly, it's predicated on how involved the leadership or ownership is, how quickly it get the data to us, how clean the data is, you know, their willingness to, to be good partners in, in the um, assessment. Yeah, that's similar to my line of work in doing the financial planning and investment side of things. Like I can do this whole thing in two weeks, you know, if I get everything I need, but it usually takes three to six months because that's all the time that my clients have and that's fine. But, but I think it's, it's understanding and it's, it's really client management of expectation, right? I, I don't go in and saying, hey, I'll get this done in two weeks. And then a month later, you get something that will make people angry. But what I do say is, here's what I think we can do predicated on X, Y, and Z. It's like when I make a financial argument at the end, I'll say like this group out in, in um, Nevada, I sensed that based on the things I saw there, well, didn't sense, I had analytics to show there was a $25 million nut on the table. But I said, you know what? That's if God came in and blessed this, then you make 25 extra million. But that's not going to happen because God doesn't care about what you're doing, first of all. And secondly, you know, Dr. Schmo needs to see three more patients a day to make that. And this person needs to do that. And getting them all aligned. So let's figure out where on that continuum we can get to. And lo and behold, we ended up landing on, within six months, we landed on about 14 million bucks. So that's fairly fairly good return for them too. Talk a little bit about cost and how you price this to people. Maybe there's people out there either in an office-based practice or with a surgery center, and they think, man, I'd love for an expert to come in and tell us all the ways we're messing up and all the money we're leaving on the table. And how does that work? Yeah, it's really predicated, again, on size and scope. I had an academic medical center I worked with for a year where I had a group on site for a year, and that was six-figure, seven-figure gig, low seven figures. You know, I think when I price this, and I'm not unreasonable, and I'm not like a large firm that's going to build in all this. I mean, I, I think I deliver a quality product at a at a very competitive price. A lot of this is predicated on understanding what the client needs. And then so me hearing that, and then maybe opining on some things that I see based on that conversation that they may need, and then building out a quote that fits what they've told me. And then candidly, if they come back and say, you know, I can't swing that, they'll say, okay, what can we do that's going to get you the result you need? And we, how do we tweak the price down a little to get you what you need? But maybe I can't give you these last two pieces, but it gets you the output you need or something like that. I had a call um, and issued a letter, a letter of agreement or letter of intent on Friday to a group, the Pacific Northwest, and they wanted strategy. And I said, well, wait a minute, you know, as I heard them talking about what this entailed, I said, no, I get that. And that sounds right. But how do you build out a strategic plan when you don't know where you are? And I'm sure it, probably in your line of work, it's like, well, wait a minute, let's, let's find out what we're doing before we say, you know, I want a strategy to get to $10 million in retirement, whatever the case may be. So I said, well, maybe we go in and do a look at what you're doing in the care delivery you know, the P, what the P&L looks like, how many patients a day, what, what the funding mechanisms are, because they get some grant funding, whatever. And then let's understand where we are. Then we can work on the strategic plan to get, to, and he's like, oh yeah, well, that makes all the sense in the world. And then he wants to take that and scale it into some, excuse me, other areas of the country. So it's, it's understanding and asking some questions and then building the quote around what I hear that they need. And then being flexible to say, yeah, I can do that and I can shave off a little bit to do it. Or I'd say, you know what, what you're asking me, what you want, I can't do for that price point. So fair, fair question though. Talk about your recommendations and how they were implemented or not and sort of what the outcome was in this circumstance. Yeah. Okay. So what, so I served a role there on an ongoing basis. I was in touch, not really interim per se, but kind of fixed fee 
where they could call me anytime they wanted. I was good with that, but it was two days on site monthly. And um, initially they were like, Hey, we want you here a lot. We do, we do this for years. And what, and I said, it's not good for you financially to have me there. Like we need to figure out how to get me out. Ideally, the goal is to get things in the right direction, get Jeff out the door and get someone in who's got the street cred and, and the bona fides to help you grow this to the next level. So we ended up recruiting a gentleman who, and I will tell you this, this is the lead a horse to water kind of thing. The P&L operations side of things was going pretty well. They were in good shape. And again, on that, all things being equal, they had a pretty good return on what they were paying for the service. So we looked for a gentleman, um, hired him to run the, the surgery center. I liked him. I thought he had pretty good, pretty good history and background in the space. But my concern was he was filling a void for himself personally versus being a, a, an invested advocate who would stay there, grow the thing, do good things. Now, I will, I will tell you this piece too. The majority shareholder had been in the market for a long time, had, had developed a little bit of a history in the market. And so some of the folks in the market were not willing to refer into the surgery center with or without equity. And so in other words, you know, doing cases in a surgery center is in many cases much more efficient than an inpatient setting, right? So the the sales piece there, the marketing piece is bring your cases here. We'll give you block time. We'll give you everything you need to get those done efficiently, get your, get your patients out the door. But there was such a level of, I guess I want to, I'll say irritation because I think that takes an edge off it. There was some mistrust and irritation in the market generally um, with regard to, to that owner um, that it was hard to drum up external non-equity member referrals. Even some of the minor equity folks were irritated enough that they would not send cases or do cases there. And so we brought this new guy on. He was there for about a year and then went and found another job. They've been unable, as far as I know, and this has been about, I think the last time I reached out was about a, no, I'm going to say six months ago. And they are still challenged by case quantities and volumes. They can't get the local market to refer in, even when it makes sense. So it's been, you know, from a, from a P&L perspective, operational perspective, we got the ducks in a row, you know, and it was scalable based on what we had done with Triple HC and some of our clinical stuff to make that thing rock. And I think the message there is, you know, as an outsider, there's only so much I can do or anyone can do if you're not going to be, I don't say honest brokers, but if you're not going to partner and do the hard things, it can't get fixed. It can't get better. There's got to be. And I would tell you too, you know, for anyone looking at an equity play within a surgery center that you need to understand what the culture is. You know, it's some of those intangibles. What, how, what's the history of the staff there? Um, I always cancel, counsel my docs when they're looking at uh, employment opportunities, meet people, talk to people, look at their tenure, ask RevCycle questions, because if they can't answer, you know, how, what your days in AR, even if you don't know what that number should be, if you ask them that, they should first go like, holy cow, good for you. I love you. And secondly, they should be able to go like, boom, we're 32 days in AR. Oh, great. Who are your biggest payers? Or, you know, are, are you, do you have negotiating leverage? Do we have so much of this market that we can go to the commercial payers and go, we'll do these here. We'll do a quality guarantee on the output, like total need. We'll guarantee it for 90 days or X, Y, and Z, whatever. But ask those questions about the infrastructure, because if they're churning people in the rev cycle or the clinical staff, they're either hiring bad people, making bad hiring decisions, or they're driving people away, making them insane. Right? So it's those intangibles that, that, you know, it's the dead body. There's 10, 10 dead bodies stacked up in the corner. You best turn and run. But asking those pieces um, will go a long way to if you're, if you're buying a fractional piece of an of a, uh, ambulatory surgery center. Yeah, I always encourage people, learn the good questions to ask because if you go in, you know, you distinguish yourself even as a, an applicant for a job or a potential partner by the, by the quality of those questions. <laughs> Absolutely right. And, and again, and I'm not 
trying to pitch here, but I'm happy to just bullet out some questions. Go like ask these things because it will be informative for you. It will show them that you know what you're talking about. And if they stutter or say, yeah, I don't care. I'll get you that in a week. Then, then you at least should go into that. Even if you buy in, you should go in with the understanding that maybe there are some issues that I need to be cognizant of. So if people are interested in that list, Jeff, where can people get in touch with you to get it? Can we do my, my email address? I don't yeah, just email, email would be great. Yep. And we'll post this in the show notes too. You will do that. So it's just Jeff dot Gorky at whipfleet.com w-i-p-f-l-i.com and i again it won't be hard and fast it'll be like ask these things and maybe just a little reason why here's why i would ask it right just like we talked about and it would at least let potential buyers go in with an understanding of what things look like you know do i get involved in the meetings will they bring me in even as a minor minority shareholder to understand, do I get to look at the dashboard monthly to see how part, you know, I'm a part owner, but it's my business too. How is it performing? Ask those simple questions and then it would steer you towards a yes or no answer. And then, you know, let's hope you don't make an emotional buying decision, which happens a lot. So. For anybody interested, check out the show notes, apmsuccess.com slash 123. We're gonna have Jeff's contact info there and some other helpful resources from today's discussion. Jeff Gorky, thank you very much for joining us and lending your expertise today to yeah, the APM Success. I appreciate audience. your time. Yeah, thanks so much, Justin. This has been great. And I'd love to do more. It's just fun uh, gabbing about the business because I am like I am passionate about this. I just enjoy it so much. And you know, candidly love to help physicians find the financial reward in what they do, but also the peace of mind, right? There's so many docs who make, um, I'll put it like bad buying decisions on some of these things, or they get into these relationships that are out of the gate challenging. And if they had just asked some questions on the front end. So I, I totally dig this stuff and I would talk all day if I could. So appreciate your time and, and thanks for the invite. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com, where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.